0: In digging into it, I, uh, I kind of re-fell in love with uh, with Vivekananda this week and uh, all the things that make him special. Uh, during our reading last night, or after our reading last night, we sat around and kind of got into an impromptu conversation about what was special about Vivekananda, what made him different, what gets our attention. And um, ideally, I'd like everybody just to circle our chairs up this morning and just kind of go around, and those people who have read his stuff, or no of him would share kind of what what impressed him, because the conversation was a delight last night. It was really fun, and uh, Vivekananda is just really, really an inspiring uh, character, to say the least. I'm going to start today, of course, with my poem from Hafiz, uh, called... uh, we keep each other happy. Like two lovers who have become lost in a winter blizzard and find a cozy, empty hut in the forest, I now huddle everywhere with the friend. God and I have built an immense fire together. We keep each other happy and warm. That, uh, that encapsulates, I think, the ideal I've been chasing for most of my life. To have that kind of relationship with with God, with with the divine, you know, to where that camaraderie, that fun, that sense of humor, that just experiencing of life happens one on one like that, and at a level of intimacy that really isn't known uh, on a normal day to day basis, and to try and find our way there. Now, normally I break into my talk about what the three most important things are before I start a lecture Uh, this morning. um, It's not necessary (laughs) because uh, uh, Vivekananda actually mentions them several times in this letter. Uh, The title is Sky Pilot. Does anybody know the reference, has heard that reference? No? No? See, I'm running into a cultural affair here. In San Francisco, that's a common reference, because it was made in San Francisco, actually. And uh, this week, when I was talking with uh, Swami A. about the lecture, or the lack of a lecture, (laughs) uh, he also didn't know a sky He was like, sky pilot, what what is that? And uh, then I got nervous, because it was a common reference, and I thought everybody would get it. And when he didn't know what it was, i didn't know where it was, <laughs> and so I was in a panic. I was like, "Oh my gosh, google, don't fail me now and so sure enough, uh, I found the reference, and i'll read it to you here uh in uh, in northern California, there's a redwood grove in Marin uh called Camp Taylor, and Swami G spent over two weeks camping there uh in a tent uh in some rain and and whatnot and uh had a, a great experience there. there. It's a very funny account of it uh, that Ida Ansel gives and uh, some of the other writings uh, when they talk about that, those couple of weeks with Swamiji. Can you imagine that, camping with Swamiji? <laughs> what, how hilarious that would be. Amazing. Anyway, there's a there's a clump of redwood trees that are obviously still standing and probably will be for the next thousand years or so. Um, and a spit of land that was all there uh, when Swamiji was there and uh, you can actually sit where he sat to meditate. Um, in Sister Gargi's book, uh, she has a set of photographs in the middle of this campsite, and uh, you can hold those pictures up, and if you grow the trees a little bit and remove some underbrush, you can actually see where they had their stove and where their picnic table was and uh, all of that. So it's still there, and if you're ever out in California and you want to go see it, um, that, it that campsite is there and visible. Now, Ida Ansel uh, had to leave the camp, and so Swamiji walked her up to catch the train. There was a narrow-gauge train back then that went out to the bay where you could catch the ferry to San Francisco. And uh, the train tracks went through the woods there and, and went within eyeshot of uh, this campsite. And I guess it went twice a day. And it was a flag train, so you it didn't have stops. You had to run up and, you know, wave at the conductor. So Ida Ansel says... Uh, When I was leaving Camp Taylor in Northern California, Swamiji took me up the steep steps to the railroad track and flagged the train for me. There was no station, and the train stopped only on signal. Swamiji's carriage was magnificent. Now, I'm assuming she means the way he carried himself. Uh, He didn't bring a carriage camping. So his eyes were always turned skyward, never down. Someone said of him that he never saw anything lower than a telegraph pole. When the engine passed us as the train slowed down, I I heard the fireman say to the engineer, hello, who is this sky pilot? I had never heard the expression and was puzzled at first as to its meaning. Then I realized that it must mean a religious leader and that it was evident to anyone who saw him that Swamiji was indeed such a leader. So sky pilot is actually a a military, I don't know if it's an official military term, but it's a military term for the chaplain. they call him the Sky Pilot. And uh, there was a big, long song written, I guess, back in the 70s called Sky Pilot. It was kind of an anti-war song uh, for Vietnam. I uh, found all that out while searching through <laughs> for the reference through Google. Uh, you can go listen to that song in its six-minute entirety on YouTube if you want. But anyway, so Swamiji is our Sky Pilot. And uh, he had, the, he had uh, this reputation because Ida Ansel says that, that he never saw anything below a telegraph pole. He kept his eyes high and, uh, and looking at the sky. As part of a practice, I would imagine, um, when I first heard this term, I guess, gosh, it was probably close to 15 years ago now, um, I tried that practice for a while. It's a hard one to maintain, which is why I'm not still doing it. <laughs> but I definitely recommend it. Because there's several advantages uh, to to looking up and keeping yourself looking up uh, when you go outside. I used to uh, run a small business back in the day, and I used to do a lot of walking between clients to meet with them. And uh, that's when I was practicing it back then. And the difference of walking through a city while looking at the sky as opposed to looking at the city, you know, uh, is 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 spectacular, certainly the sky is a constant reminder, a great reminder of that infinite peace, the sameness that underlies all of the change you know that that vastness it 's a good reminder of your place uh, in the world you know and uh, and where you set and uh, i I did some thinking about that and that notion that if you start with your eyes up like that, you definitely you get you get the idea of the infinite, you get the idea of this expansive Universe, you know, that, that despite huge amounts of change, it looks the same to us somehow uh, every time you look. So you get that notion of that unchanging. And then the lower down you look, the more specific you get until you're looking at your own feet and you're actually calculating in terms of your own steps. So it's a wonderful metaphor uh, for, for our predicament, I guess, in spiritual life, you know, is that we spend so much time looking at our feet, you know, in the, the getting caught up in the day to day activities that we lose sight of our nature, we lose sight of that infinite notion, we lose sight of our place as heirs of the universe and uh, get caught up in uh, tripping over sidewalks and uh, stepping over people and avoiding everything around us and going towards things and away from other things. So that was the notion of Sky Pilot and uh, had mother continued to inspire that idea in me, that's where we'd go. But she didn't. <laughs> Instead, she, left me to, she led me to one of these lectures that Swamiji gave where he talks about his life and mission what, from his perspective. And uh, I read through it and uh, was very interested and very caught up in quite a few things. So I, I grabbed blocks from along the way that I'm going to read to you. And uh, and just talk about his perspectives, because he was a very unique person. Uh, One of the main things that came out of that discussion last night was his intense inner integrity. Like, if if he believed something, it was fully integrated into his whole system of thought. Like, he didn't believe things that he didn't act on. He didn't think things that didn't have an effect on the way he lived. He was so integrated in the way that he was, and so fully convinced of the truth in the moment that he was there, that he could speak these outrageous truths just with that that fearless uh, presentation that we only know from Swami G. You know that that ability just to to call it like it is, to say it like it is. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> Donald Trump actually came to mind. And. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What? I don't know, talk about being caught speechless by your own thoughts. Um, but that kind of, I think that's, I, I'm assuming that's what people are finding so attractive, is he just says it, you know, just boom. There's, there's no, there's no uh, inner censoring going on. There's no, uh, you know, thinking about it before it comes out. There's no calculating what the effect is going to be. Uh, he's just saying it. And uh, I think there's something about that that we like. I mean, people like somebody who's... Who is what they are, you know. Uh, be it good, be it bad. Certainly, uh, it seems to be an American ideal, which I guess we could blame on our history. Who knows? But we like that very upfront. Be who you are. Say what you're going to say. And Swamiji fits that order uh, best of all. So when he came, uh, he actually gave this lecture in uh, in London and uh, in 1900. Uh, so it's one of one of his early lectures, and he's laying out kind of his view of the work that he was going to that he was undertaking his view of his inspirations his view of the things that inspired him and uh, where he was going to go with that and interestingly enough he starts <laughs> at the beginning uh he talks about uh being a sannyasin. Um, he says In the order to which I belong, we are called sannyasins. The word means a man who has renounced. This is a very, very, very ancient order. Even Buddha, who was 560 years before Christ, belonged to that order. He was one of the reformers of his order. That was all. So ancient. You find it mentioned way back in the Vedas, the oldest books in the world. In old India, there was a regulation that every man and woman toward the end of their lives must get out of social life altogether and think of nothing except God and their own salvation. This was to get ready for the great event, death. <laughs> so this is how Vivekananda starts when he, in, in framing his ideal. He's going all the way back to the most ancient ideals to the ancient rishis, to India, to the renunciates, uh, to the people who who devoted their life to only knowing God, to finding out the truth. And he puts it in that context, and he kind of throws Buddha in there makes sure that everybody knows that Buddha is a member of this order. And he sort of even by implication puts Jesus in that. Certainly Jesus was a renunciate, you know, certainly was a monk, an all-renouncing monk. And uh, I began to contemplate that notion, and there's a wonderful challenge in that, because if you think that far back and you put the world in that kind of context, uh, a lot of his imagery makes a lot more sense later on for a universal religion uh, I, I I spoke last week at an Indian temple not too far from here, and uh, one of one of my points that was made it was about Hinduism, and uh, you know in their flyer, they had talked about uh, uh, the, the seminar was to kind of discuss the the unity of Hinduism into to encourage the youth so they know how to defend their Hinduism, defend their their being Hindus, and uh, I, I I mentioned some confusion at that notion of having to defend one's Hinduism, uh, because Hinduism uh, to me uh, is a self evident, a manifestation of love. It has no boundaries, you know. There, all religions are true, uh, you know. All Avatars are respected and honored as coming from God. Uh, you know, all religions are considered a valid path to that knowledge, to that truth. And so it was a kind of a confusing idea to me. And I think Swamiji is going to that same space. Because if you go back to the rishis, you go back to this beginning of time, uh, where is Europe? And uh, where is Russia? And, and where is the United States? You know, we're, we're all together your ancestors are my ancestors at that time we were all reading about our rishis the rishis that were of all of our families we were one people you know and uh, and so that to me was hinduism life itself is religion the quest for for truth however you want to frame that if you are if you are an, an atheistic scientist going for the material answers you're still on a quest for truth, a quest to know, to understand the nature of the universe around you, to understand your place in it, you know, to, to find out what makes it tick. But that drive, that inner desire to know is is a common thing. And that is religion in its purest form. That is spiritual life in its purest form. It is the universality of Hinduism, that quest to know the truth. To understand the truth. He says this order is not a church and the people who join the order are not priests. There is an absolute difference between priests and sannyasins. The sannyasins don't possess property. They don't marry. And beyond that, there is no organization. That part I can attest to. (laughs) The only bond that there is is the bond between the teacher and the taught. And that is peculiar to India. The teacher is not a man who comes just to teach, and I pay him so much, and there it ends. In India, it is really like an adoption. The teacher is more than my own father, and I am truly his child, his son, in every respect. I owe him obedience and reverence, first, before my own fathers even, because they say the father gave me this body, but he showed me the way to salvation, so therefore he is greater than my father. And we carry this love this respect for our teacher all of our lives. So Vivekananda is very careful here in setting up his beginning to tear down church walls, to tear down organized structures, institutions, to say that that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about my mission and my dream, my vision, the universality of these things. He's going back to... to. Just a teacher and a student. Someone who wants to know and someone who knows something or has seen something and is sharing that, passing it on. That is the essence of it. And he goes all the way back to that foundation to build on. And he goes on to say, this is really wonderful. There's there's a very interesting thing he does here. Now, I happened to get an old man to teach me. (laughs) The tittering, the humor in that is that his old man is this man in the center of the room here, Sri Ramakrishna, you know, highly revered by many. uh, But by Swamiji, (laughs) he got himself an old man to teach me. And this man was very peculiar, he says. He didn't go much for intellectual scholarship, scarcely studied books. But when he was a boy, he seized with a tremendous idea of getting truth direct. Now, there's a wonderful idea. You know, that is uniquely, uh, uniquely Hindu. In, in my experience, I'll say that. And that's this idea that you can get truth directly from God. You don't, you don't have to always be a third party. And that is beautiful. I'm so happy that Swamiji finds that as one of his core elements to, to his experience, to his life and his mission. You know, getting away the, 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 the institutionalized forms of religion, the, 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 the staid forms of knowledge that we have, bringing it down to the human level, one person and another person, two of them wanting to know the truth. And then this idea that his teacher, his peculiar old man, <laughs> had this tremendous idea, this tremendous thirst from his boyhood of finding out directly what is true. Wanted to know through experience what is true. And that's one thing about Ramakrishna that came up in our conversation last night that was very special. Ramakrishna never has to argue or defend his points with anybody. You never see him doing that in in the scriptures, which is very odd. I mean, to read scriptures and find no argument happening is a very odd thing. But that's because Ramakrishna sat in the same room with God. And talked and conversed freely with God and got answers directly and freely from the divine because of his love and because of his purity and because of who he was. And so as he sat there and and shared what he was seeing and shared what he was knowing, there was no argument. You can't argue with experience. You can't argue with somebody who's sitting there looking at that which you are trying to learn about, you know. And, and uh, this is the notion of, of what's available to us. And I wanted so much to own this for myself. I wanted, I wanted my religion to, to to come to life in this at this level, to know directly, to believe that I could know directly, to believe that I I can see God, I can see this divinity. I can see the God of the Christians, you know, this God of mercy, this God of infinite love, this this God who, who would give everything for, you know, the salvation of the world in that context. I could see Ramakrishna's beloved mother, you know, I could see Hafiz's beloved friend, you know, to have that as a real possibility, to have that as an anchor one of the first things that I would mention about my religious life, my spiritual undertakings. And Vivekananda found himself a delightful, peculiar old man whose tremendous idea was to get truth directly. First, he tried by studying his own religion, and then he got the idea that he must get the truth of other religions. And with that idea, he joined all the sects, one after another, For the time being, he did exactly what they told him to do. He lived with the devotees of those different sects in turn until interpenetrated with the particular ideal of that sect. After a few years, he would go to another sect. When he had gone through with that, he came to the conclusion that they were all good. He had no criticism to offer anyone. They are all so many paths leading to the same goal. And then he said, that is a glorious thing. That there should be so many paths, because if there were only one path, perhaps it would suit only an individual man. The more the number of paths, the more chances for every one of us to know the truth. If I cannot be taught in one language, I will try another, and so on. And thus his benediction was for every religion. I highlighted several things in there. One, they were all good. Tucker's experience of all the religions was good. He saw the greatness in them. You know, he took it to another level. It wasn't a matter of toleration, because who am I to tolerate another, right? It was a matter of understanding the truth. It was a full-on acceptance that that religion was true and to give it the full honors of that truth, you know. He said they were all good, and he said that this is a glorious thing. He reveled in the truth of all the religions. He reveled in the fact that there was such a diversity in the ways of knowing God, of finding that inner truth, of finding out your nature, who you are. And I wanted to bring that home. You know, one of the things I found out this week, and there's some challenges, I think, for us in that, because we, we like to say we're universal, You know, we like to we like to position ourselves. All religions are true. And uh, and and we do try to abide by that. But I don't think any of us are at the point of saying it's a glorious thing. You know, it's a good thing where we actually revel in in our the faith of our Christian neighbors. Or we actually delight in the spiritual practices of our Muslim uh, companions, you know, that we don't we don't often step out of our own comfort boundary. We've taken this, this this religion with no boundaries and kind of just come up with a general understanding that this is who we are. <laughs> We've created our own sense of I. We've created our own sense of sect, of sectarianism, of separateness. You know, and it, it's mirrored in the fact in the Hindu community we have 14, 14 temples here in Washington, D.C. Now, I don't know what how far those boundaries are. Somebody told me that earlier this week. And uh, I thought, well, that's, <laughs> that's really interesting because we have 14 temples, Hindu temples, in Washington, and we have no national Hindu temple, <laughs> which was just a passing thought because you drive down, I don't remember what street that was, Michigan or Wisconsin or something, and there's the National Mosque and there's the National Cathedral and there's the National Greek Orthodox Church and they're all magnificent, wonderful structures, you know, real statements of, of presence and, and unity and influence. And then you come to us, you know, the Hindus, and you, you, there's not one there. And you'd have to go to 14 different places. And those 14 different places, how much unity is there in those 14 different places, you know? Generally, if they're if it, talking from a cultural perspective, the people from the south are going to this one, and the people from the north are going to this one, and the Bengalis have got this one over here. And within this universal religion, you've got 14 different sects all over the place. So I think that that's a vision we can catch. <laughs> I think this is an idea of Ji's that we can sort of grab onto and make it a point to... To reach across. Because what's the effect? It's not that 14 centers is bad or not, not, not that there's anything wrong with that. But I also realize that there's at least, uh, I heard in conversations, mentioning of three different Hindu seva organizations that are uh, uh, trying to create a unified <laughs> seva or service effort on the part of the greater Hindu community in in Washington. We've got three different groups trying to do the same thing, and as I was talking with them, at least two of the people I talked to didn't know about the other two organizations. One one person knew about the other two organizations. And I thought, you see, we can learn something from Vivekananda here, this idea of universality, of working together, pulling together, because three separate service organizations with the same mission goal in the same locality isn't necessary And isn't probably the best way to go about doing something, you know, that that we need to increase this sense of brotherhood. We need to increase this sense of of togetherness uh, by God, at least through the other Hindu organizations, you know. And then we can kind of spill out over that, you know, maybe take some – I'm just playing with ideas on how to build that unity, how to build that sense. Because think of this universal temple idea – That Swamiji is talking about. He gets into it a lot more. So let me go forward here with these. He says. uh, So he's talking about his teacher. He says that that he went to all these different sects. To find the truth of them. To find God. And found that each one took him where he wanted to go. And then he follows on to say. Vivekananda says. All the ideas that I preach. Are only an attempt to echo his ideas. To echo what he learned from Ramakrishna. You know, that we don't have two different sets of teachings going on. And I looked at that relationship between Vivekananda and his teacher and that intense love that was there. And he says it later on. He's writing a letter to, uh, Miss McLeod. He calls her Joe, uh, for Josephine. He says, after all, Joe, I am only the boy who used to listen with rapt wonderment at the wonderful words of Ramakrishna under the banyan tree at Dakshineshwar. That's my true nature. Works and activities, doing good, and so forth, these are all superimpositions. Now again I hear his voice, that same old voice thrilling my soul. Bonds are breaking, love dying, work becoming tasteless. The glamour is off life. Now only the voice of the master calling. I come, my Lord, I come. Let the dead bury the dead, follow thou me. I come, my beloved Lord, I come. That was his relationship with his, with this peculiar old man. That even toward the end of his life, it was the only voice left in his head, and he understood it to be his true nature. When everything else was removed from his life, and everything else was taken away, what did he have? He had that relationship with the divine, with his teacher, left behind. And I thought how much I wanted that, you know, to have that kind of relationship with, with Thakur, with Jesus, with God. You know, with that, at, that, at that level, to understand that it was so fundamental to you that it's your nature, it's who you are, that manifestation in its most pure form of love, its true form of the guru, the teacher, and the depth of that commitment of the teacher to the student to have a relationship that's more than father and son, you know, that's more committed than father and son, even deeper. Well, there at his feet, I conceived these ideas. There with some other young men, I was just a boy. I went there when I was about 16. Some of the other boys were still younger and some a little older, about a dozen or more. And together we conceived that this ideal had to be spread and not only spread, but made practical. That is to say, we must show the spirituality of the Hindus, the mercifulness of the Buddhists, The activity of the Christians, the brotherhood of the Mohammedans, by our practical lives. We shall start a universal religion now and here, we said. We will not wait. You see how central this idea was to him? Do you see how how important it was to him? He takes it all the way back to the first days of sitting at the feet of Ramakrishna, the master. Him in a room full of boys, you know, probably very similar to what we had going on during the youth camp here. You know, a group of people between six and sixteen years that's who they were. This, this ragtag group of preteen kids, you know, hanging around, goofing off. you read about it with the master. They, they, they were goofing off all day long with him, laughing, and there's always wrestling going on, and you know it's just a very different scene what I, from what I had imagined before I gave it some thought. So you have these sixteen year old the 16-year-old kid of Vivekananda and these other boys who've come up with this idea from their master of a universal religion and they take it upon themselves to build it. We have to make this happen somehow. And we, as his students, have to make this happen somehow. We should sit and we should talk and understand, first of all, what does it mean? What does it mean? Because Vivekananda was so clear and Ramakrishna was so clear too, That Ramakrishna didn't come to start yet another sect. You know, he didn't come to to start yet another group of religious people, yet another church. That's not what he wanted. And that's why when Vivekananda comes and talks about his teacher, he doesn't even mention his name. You know, he's not a Ramakrishnite. You know, he's not. He's a universal knower of God. He's bigger than that. There are no boundaries for him. And I think about that and the, and the order and our mission today and, and kind of how, how things are shaping up. And, uh, you know, I, I can't say whether it's good or bad, whether we failed or, or, or succeeded or not, because it's so young still. Who knows where it's going? But it's curious to me, what does it look like, a church with no boundaries, a church with no competition? <laughs> you know, a church of only encouragement to everyone around them, wherever they are in life you know a church a church that takes anybody wherever they are and helps them stand up and orients them in a positive direction and gives them that little swat say go get them <laughs> go get them you know to have that kind of place how do we build that how do we manifest that it has to start in our individual lives right all everything starts at our individual practice so it comes down to first of all rem- removing the hatreds right removing our own our own prejudices that are there you know i hate to admit that but when i think about other other groups and stuff i have my prejudices i have my experiences that were negative and my difficulties growing up and whatnot that that are there so it's the first thing we have to do is get rid of those you know how can we celebrate their faith and their ideals if we hold on to things that offended our ego or that uh, you know offended our small sense of self at some point so to go forward and to try and, and and build that and and what does it look like how will, will we still come here <laughs> you know I mean, if all religions are true why are we here you know to be clear on that it's not that we shouldn't be here but we should know why we're here you know and take that forward and do, and, and would everybody from any other religion who stumbled into our midst would they would they find that comfort here would they find their own ideal here because they did when they came to visit takur you know, when they came, it's, it is written about Takor. I think in The Great Master. Um, anyway, that's long enough that you won't look. <laughs> I think it was there the reference where he where uh, where he says that when people would come to him for instruction, it was d- different people from different religions. I mean, Christians would come and Muslims would come and they would ask for his spiritual insight and he would give it to them within their own context so that it's written that they all thought he was of their tradition. So he had this so down that people of, of all different traditions would come. And he says that he used to have visions of who was coming so that he would know their tradition before he got there. And he would teach them through their own scriptures, through their own uh, 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 you know stories and, and uh, parables, to the point that they thought that, they, that he was of their own tradition, you know. Can we tear down the barriers in our life to where people of other religions, do we know enough about their religions? Can we say that we celebrate their religion if we haven't looked into it at all? If we haven't studied to find the gold that was there, you know? Can we really call ourselves universalists if we haven't read any scripture but our own, you know? And learned how to use it, learned how to find the beautiful nuggets that Ramakrishna said were glorious, you know, that he celebrated. Can we find that? Are we willing to find that, you know? Are we willing to be universal at a real level more than just as an ideal or just as a as a tenet of our religion? We shall start a universal religion now and here, we said. We will not wait. Our teacher was an old man who would never touch a coin with his hands. He took just the little food offered, just so many yards of cotton cloth, no more. He could never be induced to take any other gift. With all these marvelous ideas, he was strict because that made him free. So again, coming down to the essence, he's talking again, underlying all of this, universal religion, you can't get away from it. It's that squirmy point called renunciation, (laughs) You know, that squirmy point called renunciation, where you where you 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 walk away from those things that distract your mind from from your divinity, those things that cloud your mind with the small concerns of ego, to walk away from them. Like his teacher, when he nails it down to, to the essence of Ramakrishna, he says that a man who would never touch a coin with his hands, took only the food he needed, had only a couple of yards of cotton cloth and nothing more, and couldn't be induced to take more. He was strict. I highlighted that. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that I always have to kind of get into a prayerful situation whenever I talk about being strict, because I'm just not, you know. <laughs> it's like, that's the ideal. We have to, we have to gather amount, our wits about ourselves and be serious about our spiritual lives and be serious about our renunciation, be serious about our quest, be serious about our, our digging into the troves that, that Takur left for us, uh, the troves of inspiration. And, and to, to to hurt sometimes, you know, to be intense enough to be uncomfortable in our spiritual lives. You know, to be intense enough to push a little bit beyond our boundary, to do without just a little bit more than what, than what keeps us content, you know, because that discontent that's caused by doing without is exactly the thing that you have to realize has nothing to do with your physical circumstance, you know. That contentment, the reason the reason that these practices are good to, to kind of make yourself a little uncomfortable is because that comfort is supposed to be found inside already. Like in Hafiz's poem, that little cottage with him and the beloved. You know, when the outside world gets uncomfortable to the spiritual seeker, to the mature spiritual seeker, that doesn't matter. He's got that inner place, that inner peace, that equanimity of mind, undisturbed, you know. Nature that's within that welling fountain of divine love that he can tap into anytime, that he's always aware of and never forgets, that which is in you. He says, now this handful of boys got this idea and all the practical results that spring out of these ideas, universal religion, great sympathy for the poor, and all that are very good in theory, but one must practice. One must practice, and with practice comes struggle. You know, one of the uh, one of the things that I uh, somewhat unfortunate, of course, I used to bemoan it as a Christian too, because we did the same thing with Jesus. You know, you put him on a pedestal, you call him the Son of God, and suddenly he's not you. There's something special about him that made him such a great person. You know, that made him such a wonderful example, and we do the same thing with Thakur and with Ma and with Swamiji. The first thing we do is They're something else, you know, though they're in that category. I'm not going to argue that truth whether they are or not. But the fact is that by doing that, we let ourselves off the hook. (laughs) By saying Swamiji was an amazing person, oh, but he knew his nature and he was, you know, a companion of God. He was a rishi even before he was born and all of that. Sure. Could be, maybe not be. I don't know. But the thing is. By saying that and by letting yourself then be comfortable not being that is a real disadvantage. A real disadvantage. Because Swamiji talks about here about struggling. Okay? So we like to say that Swamiji had something special going on and he was a rishi and blah, 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 blah. And so naturally he, he was Swamiji. It was easy as punch for him. But listen to this paragraph. He's talking about when he was when he wanted to practice, when they when they wanted to go forward with this idea that this this group of boys had come up with this idea of establishing this universal religion. He said, I ran into an immediate quandary on the one side was my mother and my brothers. My father died at the time and we were left very poor, left poor to the point of not having food on the table. That's the kind of poor we don't really know. Oh, very poor, almost starving all the time. I was the only hope of the family, the only one who could do anything to help them. He was 16. He was the only one old enough to work and mature enough to get a job. I had to stand between my two worlds. On the one hand, I would have to see my mother and brothers starve to death. And on the other, I had believed that this man's ideas were for the good of India and the world and had to be preached and worked out. And so the fight went on in my mind for days and months, Sometimes I would pray for five or six days and nights together without stopping. Oh, the agony of those days. I was living in hell, the natural affections of my boy's heart drawing me to my family. I could not bear to see those who were the nearest and dearest to me suffering. And on the other hand, nobody to sympathize with me. Who would sympathize with the imaginations of a boy? Imaginations that caused so much suffering to others who would sympathize with me. None except one. Okay? That's how easy it was for Swamiji. He was just a great soul, and it all came. No, that boy suffered. <laughs> that boy had to walk away from his starving family in order to see this vision happen, to create this room for us this morning. To give, to give to my life the scriptures and the ideal of Thakur that I would have had no other way of finding out about. He walked away from his own family and struggled with that to the point of praying five or six days and nights together without stopping. I've never prayed five or six nights or days for anything, <laughs> not even my most cherished desire. This is Swamiji's heart. This is where Swamiji is at. And he had that kind of intensity to call us to that kind of intensity. He had that kind of vision to raise us up to that kind of vision. He was willing to pay that kind of sacrifice in order to have that kind of realization, that kind of manifestation. He says, nobody could sympathize with him except one. here he goes again, that was the woman The husband went on to become a monk in his own way, and from a distance, the wife went on helping as much as she could. And later, when the man became a great spiritual giant, she came. Really, she was his first disciple. And she spent the rest of her life taking care of the body of this man. He never knew whether he was living or dying or anything. Sometimes when talking, he would get so excited that if he sat on live coals, he didn't know it. Live charcoals, forgetting all about his body all the time. Well, that lady, his wife was the only one who sympathized with the idea of those boys. But she was powerless. She was poorer than we were. Never mind. We plunged into the breach. (laughs) You know who he's talking about, right? The Divine Mother, that lady, his wife, (laughs) in this casual way. Why is he talking like that? You know, why is he talking? He's in London. It's his first tour into the West, you know, to to per. Preach this first opportunity, talking about his mission and his life, what it's all about. And he doesn't even mention Holy Mother's name. Doesn't even mention Takur's name. That peculiar old man and that woman. Why would he do that? It's very clear why he would do that. He wasn't mentioning things that people would have to believe in. That they would have to find issue with and come up with some determination because he was a universal religionist. He saw no need for that. He saw no need for that. He saw that this room full of people were on their way to their divine truth, that his divine mother had already taken care of them and was taking care of them and had their lives and their success and their realizations all mapped out already, that the religions they were involved in, the thoughts that they were following and testing and trying in their lives were good enough. He had no need to convert them or to give them something, you know, that they lacked. He was there to offer them anything they wanted from him, but not to force anything that he wanted for them. He was a man of service. That's our calling, really, as a congregation, to be a center of service. We're here for people who come and And ask anything from us. And we're willing to give. Willing to care. Take them where they are. Require nothing of them. But to inspire them to be the best they can be with where they are. And what they're doing. And where they're going. He found it in this woman. Well this lady, his wife, was the only one who sympathized with the idea of these boys. I believed as I was living that these ideas were going to rationalize India and bring better days to many lands and foreign races. With that belief came the realization that it is better for a few persons to suffer than that such ideas should die out of the world. What if a mother or two brothers die? It is a sacrifice. Let it be done. No great thing can be done without sacrifice. The heart must be plucked out and the bleeding heart placed upon the altar. Then great things are done. Is there any other way? None have found it. All right, what's he talking about there? He's talking about his mom and his brothers, starving and needing. You know, there is some solace in it in the fact that that Thakur promised him his parents, his family wouldn't starve to death after he had begged, begged, and begged. Well, you know, mother, to to grant him that boon, that they would never have to do without food or simple food, simple clothing and simple food. But look at his devotion. Look at his his commitment to his ideal, to the ideal of his master. And look how he threw everything into that. He struggled for months with this notion of, of his starving family versus his call to be a sannyasin, to, to rise up to Takur's vision. You know, Thakur's ideal, this pure love, this universal ideal of God. And he says that he came to the conclusion that even his own family had to be given up. That this ideal was important enough not to die out. You know, if Thakur had come and gone and there was no Swamiji, no nine volumes of amazing works, you know, no letters, no visiting all the different centers around the world. He wasn't visiting centers. He was visiting people and giving ideas. It's because of that sacrifice that he can write something like this. Nothing else is necessary but these. Love. Sincerity. And patience. What is life but growth? Expansion. Love. Therefore, all love is life. It is the only law of life. All selfishness is death, and this is true here or hereafter. For none lives, my boys, but he who loves. Feel, my children, feel. Feel for the poor, the ignorant, the downtrodden. Feel until the heart stops and the brain reels, and you think you will go mad. Then... Pour the soul out at the feet of the Lord, and then will come power, help, and indomitable energy. Struggle. Struggle was my motto for the last ten years. Struggle still, I say. When it was all dark, I used to say, struggle. When the light is breaking in, I still say, struggle. Be not afraid, my children. Look not up in the attitude of fear toward that infinite starry vault as if it would crush you. Wait. Wait. In a few hours more, the whole of it will be under your feet. Wait. Money does not pay, nor fame, nor name. They do not pay, nor learning. It is love that pays. It is character that cleaves its way through the adamantine walls of difficulty. This beautiful notion, this beautiful heart that was born in Swamiji out of suffering. Out of constant struggle to realize an ideal. And again, you know, you always have to take these things. It's like these, these things, when they become that intense, you know, immediately they, you put them in a like little vacuous bubble to kind of look at and appreciate and you want to put it on a shrine and worship it as an ideal, like, ooh, that's beautiful. When just the opposite is necessary. You know, just the opposite is necessary. You need to rip those things out of their coverings. and You need to put them right there in the heart, and you need to think about, wow, my day is dead compared to that. (laughs) The amount I feel for the people around me is dead compared to that. The amount of compassion that I feel ignited in my heart when I see somebody downtrodden or see somebody struggling is dead compared to that. And to not be okay with that, to not be okay with that, to go into this thing that he's talking about here, to struggle, to struggle and struggle and struggle to make it better, so so that we don't die that way. And there we were. No compromise was the watchword. This is the ideal, and this has to this has got to be carried out. But where would we find the strength? Thus we went on for some years. In the meanwhile, making excursions all over India, trying to bring about this idea gradually. Ten years were spent without a ray of light. Ten more years, a thousand times despondency came. But there was one thing that always kept us hopeful. This is a really beautiful thing. So he's talking about almost, you know, ten years of running around. They were called the sweeper swamis. You know, they lived in a <laughs> that haunted house, you know, the, that monastery, and uh, didn't have food. Most of the most of the people that hung around Ramakrishna had kind of more or less abandoned them, sort of this group of boys, told them to go home even, you know, told them they were being irresponsible, told them they need to go home, take care of their families, go get their educations. But these boys held themselves together And kept on going forward. And this is the thing. A thousand times despondency came. But there was one thing that always kept us hopeful. The tremendous faithfulness to each other. The tremendous love between us. I have got a hundred men and women around me. If I become the devil himself tomorrow, they will say, here we are still. We will never give you up. That is the great blessing in happiness in misery in famine in pain in the grave in heaven or in hell who never gives me up is my friend is such friendship a joke a man may have salvation through such friendship that brings salvation if we can love like that if we have that faithfulness while why there is the essence of all concentration You need not worship any gods in the world if you have that faith, that strength, that love. What's he say there? He says all of our practices, all this time we spent meditating, all this time we spent, you know, repeating mantras. What is it for? It's to develop that kind of love. So look around in your life. Do you have that kind of love for anybody? Do you have that kind of commitment to anyone where they could do nothing? in which, in, in a case where you would abandon them, where they would do nothing, could do nothing for you to abandon them? Do we have that kind of commitment? Do, does anybody feel that way about us? Does anybody know that we would stand beside them to the very bitter end and not leave them? Does anybody feel like that? Then meditate harder. <laughs> meditate more think more of the divine, be more inspired by the presence of the divine and go forward. Do not hold back. Look upon all beings as your own self. Should this be confined to books alone? How will they grant salvation who cannot feed a hungry mouth with a crumb of bread? How will those who become impure at the mere breath of others purify others? Don't touchism is a form of mental disease Beware. All expansion is life. All contraction is death. All love is expansion. All selfishness is contraction. Love is, therefore, the only law of life. He who loves lives. He who is selfish is dying. Therefore, love for love's sake, because it is the only law of life, just as you breathe to live. This is the secret of selfless love, selfless action. And all the rest. That's the final calling. That's the final ideal of Thakur, of Swamiji. This love, this universality, all couched in that idea of love. That idea of seeing that oneness of all things. Every lecture ends the same. Because there's only one ideal. <laughs> love is your nature. Love is the only, the only thing that you can manifest that will bring any contentment to your life at all. It's the only thing that's going to take away that restlessness. It's the only thing that's going to cure a midlife crisis. It's the only thing that's going to be in your deathbed with you at the very end. You know. It is that ideal. And we're called to live that with a sense of sacrifice. With a sense of commitment. With a sense of devotion. That doesn't know a limit. That doesn't know how to stop, but gives and walks away from anything and everything in that pursuit. That's our calling as, as the universal religion, because that's the nugget and seed of every religion, that love. That is how we become universal. That's how we become all-encompassing. That's how we become a blessing to the world and not a curse Love is the only thing to bring us all together again and to stop this other nonsense that's going on. I'll close with another poem from Hafiz. You say, I say. You say, how can I find God? And I say, the friend is the lining in your pocket, the curved pink wall in your belly. Sober up. Steady your aim, reach in, turn the universe and the beautiful rascal inside out. You say, that sounds preposterous. I don't believe that God is in there. I say, well, then why not try the Himalayas? You could get naked and pretend to be an exalted yogi and eat bark and snow for 40 years. And then you might think, hey, old man, why don't you go shovel some snow? (laughs) So God is in you. God is the breath of each one of us this morning. He's that divine inspiration. We've put him in the form of Takor as an ideal because Takor gave us the best glimpse of that. But even the highest love that Takor showed, he himself said, God is more. Your potential is higher. They may have had advent- a, a wonderful, this, <laughs> this old man and this woman <laughs> may may have had advantages in the fact that they may have known their nature, but they gave sacrifices. They struggled hard. They didn't let go and become ordinary people. They became people that have inspired all of us and brought us oddly enough together this morning into the same room. And I always want to take advantage of that charge that the kind of love that this ragtag group of boys had for each other is the love that we're called to demonstrate for each other. Again, I remind us, (laughs) we're a Petri dish to practice these things. You're my Petri dish to practice these things. To love with that kind of commitment. So that when you think of someone here, you know that they will never give you up. So that when someone thinks of you here, they know that you will never give them up. That you are a friend. In the order of the friend of all friends. And with that, let's take a few moments just to be quiet.